0: Back with you on another quarantine edition of the Forest Hills Tennis Podcast. I'm Noah Wolf with Luke Jensen. Our guest today is Andrew Krasny. And if you don't know him by name, you definitely know his work. He's been a U.S. Open stadium host since 2009. He also hosts at Miami, Indian Wells, the Labor Cup, the WTA Finals in Zen. I could go on and on. Andrew, welcome to the podcast.
1: Guys, thank you for having me on. I wish it was in better times, but uh, we're making the best of it, that's for sure.
2: Well, Andrew, you had such an amazing career. Tell us about how you got into the tennis industry. Because a lot of people think of professional tennis as you just have to become the next Roger Federer. When there are so many people in the press, in the, you know, so many different areas of the sport that still love the game, but contribute in other ways. How did you get into tennis and get to this position? It's a funny question that you ask that. I'd be curious to find out uh, all media
1: presenters, hosts, and journalists. I'd love to know their journey because with you guys, uh, Former players, we know how you got into the game, right, Luke? But uh, yep. guys like me, I think it's a different, uh, a different kind of story. I was, I had hosted a dating show on the USA Network called Crush. I was an audience warm-up guy in LA. I was writing jokes and producing a radio show for the late Joan Rivers, and I fell in love with tennis as a teenager and as an adult. I was sitting, and you had been there many times. I was sitting at Bob Kramer's tournament at UCLA. And uh, my show just wrapped and I saw an 84 year old guy introduce Andre Agassi, who clearly was about to retire, the guy. And I thought, you know, there's a, there's a job for me there. There, there. there has to be an energy outside on the court in tennis. And I, I set my sights, Bob Kramer, I had a friend working for Bob Kramer. He gave me a, a chance to volunteer on a side court
2: and the rest is history. What did you learn through that process as you transitioning from, you know, working with celebrities and Hollywood types to now, I always tell people all the time, there is nothing more defining than the moment as you're about to enter as a gladiator into the arena. Now, it's not life and death, but to the players who go out there, that is where you make your bread. That is where your dreams have always been focused on. And you're sitting at the biggest tournaments, the US Open and Indian Wells and LA Open, and you see these two competitors, whether it's Agassi and Sampras and Chang and, and the, Roger and Rafa, talk about being right there with them as they're about to enter that moment. Well, that's
1: always been my job. I think even subconsciously before I, I, I made it right and started getting busy in tennis, I always felt that it was my job to to heighten the level of excitement on a tennis court, to make sure that whether there were 100 fans there or 16,000 fans in the stadium, that we had to rise to the level to get the best performance that we could possibly get out of these players, to let them know that this arena, that the, that you, the way you put it, the Gladiators walk into, we need to make sure that, that from our standpoint, that we are responsibly making sure that that arena is the most conducive for us to see the best tennis possible.
0: But what I think is even more interesting is in that moment before you actually get to invite them out on court, you're with them. And it's just you and them there. And you really get really a personal moment with them. And I'm sure you've come to know a lot of them over the years. Federer, uh, Serena Williams, Madison Keys. I just take a look at your Instagram and see all those little selfies that you're posting. What are these guys like behind the scenes?
1: It's funny. There's a few players that make fun of me for posting selfies. I'm a big proponent that uh, – we need to have a good equilibrium in how many, how many posts we put on social media that have us in the picture and then have the events we're working for. Uh, you know, behind the scenes with players is a different uh, ball of wax for me. And both of you I've, I've met behind the scenes as well. I'll be the first to admit that I have the most inappropriate sense of humor that's out there. I worked for Joan Rivers for 25 years. Uh, I love communicating in every aspect of my life through humor. And... Uh, and I don't make an exception for communicating with tennis players behind the scenes. It allows me to get to know people. It allows people to get to know me. And it lends itself an opportunity for me, I believe, to get better questions out of players once we're working. And I have to ask a serious question after a match. I feel that I have a bit of an advantage asking Maria Sharapova a question or Rafa a question if we know each other on many different levels other than just the guy who has the microphone right after a, a match?
2: I will say as a former player and watching your work, players really look forward to talking to you. And I, I really wish we could start getting to the point now where even the person who lost the match steps up and because I want to hear from their perspective too instead of just hey you know thank you wave to the crowd and exit I think when when we saw that great moment with Coco Goff and then Saka drew Coco into that moment to talk about her experience and everything it, that we still talk about that today talk about your approach you talk about humor Who are your favorite people to talk to post-match
1: well, first of all, you, you've touched upon a bunch of things there. I think after a match, before you know, a player who loses that match has a good fifteen twenty minutes of processing their thoughts before they get up to media, and they uh, and that's a dangerous fifteen or twenty minutes. I would love to get to talk to a, a player after they lose a match right after uh, to really get their their perspective so much closer to the loss of that match. Not sure if that's going to happen, but I would love to do it. Uh, have had the opportunity to do it maybe a couple of times in in situations where, I mean, very rare, Luke and and, and Noah. I would say when David Ferrer retired last year in Miami and it was his last match, it was so unique to get out and talk to someone who lost the match right after they did and do it on court. Uh, I would say that a tennis player, the sophisticated ones, which I'm going to say is about 98% of them, really want someone to ask them a question who, who fully digested the match, who watched it, who understood it, who's not going to ask a simple question and is going to ask something that's unpredictable. It's hard to do. I'm not going to say that I do that every single time, because obviously a match writes itself. And if Roger came back from being down 5-2 in the third set, we want to know how he did it. But understanding the pivotal points of the match, where he turned things around, Roger will notice, Serena will notice, uh, Madison Keys, I mean, they all notice when you really ask a question that proves that you were invested in that match emotionally.
0: You know, you mentioned your style is fairly irreverent, and that is putting it very, very lightly. But how do you go about walking the line between asking these serious tennis questions where you're expected to elicit a response for the audience and actually getting something that's entertaining out of a player who doesn't necessarily want to be speaking post-match?
1: Well, listen, not all of them do want to talk after a match. And that's a fine line that we walk. I very rarely will incorporate humor into a post-match interview, unless I'm in denial. I guess I have to go back and take a look at some of them on tape. I think you Uh, do. I've seen your stuff. uh, Not a ton. And every once in a while, it comes back and bites me in the back. Uh, But I think where a player like Venus Williams, for example, who I consider a friend, uh, felt that, that it I love to create a safe atmosphere for a player to talk to me. And where a couple of years ago, I brought up to the attention that you know Venus was almost forty years old and out here playing incredible tennis, and And she felt safe enough to get to get me back, to talk about how she said to me, You know, Andrew, I don't come out here telling everybody how old you are. and it got it went viral. and she it got ten thousand fans at Indian Wells. To uh, to feel a little riled up, that it was nice to see somebody giving me a hard time back. Uh, a few of them have done it. Roger's done it. Andy Roddick has done it. Uh, Venus has done it. I love when they give me a little bit of a hard time when it's uh, when it's the right opportunity. The only time that was ever rough was when John McEnroe got me back for something that
2: that I still have to see a, a therapist about. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about Roger Feder. Tell us about you working with him and those moments on that stage.
1: Listen, Roger is, uh, it's never a cliche when you talk about uh, the kind of gentleman uh, Roger Federer is. I can't tell you enough good things about the guy. He's everything you think he is, uh, and even more. I will tell you that uh, I've never met anybody who understands what they've done in their career more than Roger. It's almost like a savant that he could tell you what happened in the second round in, in Hamburg, 18 years ago, and if you get the score wrong of that match in Hamburg 18 years ago, Roger will catch you on it. I've never seen, maybe Lindsey Davenport, but I don't think I've ever seen a player who understands and knows so crisply what scores were on every single match in every match that he's played in his career.
0: Luke just Crazy. completely grazed over something, but what did McEnroe actually say to you? That just sounds like <laughs>
1: um, John, I was just starting to work with, you, know, you have to understand, I came into the sport long after John retired. So John and I uh, have only worked together in the legend events, and I started to get to know John, which isn't the easiest thing to do in the world, as Luke will tell you, uh, and I said to John one night before we went out to do an exhibition, and a big exhibition, I said, John, I'm going to joke around with the guys. Is that okay? Do you mind if I joke around? No, man, go ahead. Joke around with me. Do whatever you want. And uh, John had grown a beard a couple of years ago, had a full beard. And it was right around the time that a movie had just come out. And I said, to the, I said, ladies, and about 9,000 people in the stadium, I go, this gives a whole new meaning to Fifty Shades of Grey. And John McEnroe looks right at me. In front of 9,000 people, and says, "You're an asshole." <laughs> You're so now I got my mom and dad there. I got my brother there. I got, you know, everybody in tennis is there watching this, and it was rough, man. It was a it was a rough couple minutes and a what few. What do you, people, you say to that? How, how do you? I did I didn't. First, of all, I'm not going to get into it with John in front of eight thousand people. He comes backstage and says to me, well, you really walked the line there, Andrew. You almost crossed the line there, man. And I was like, okay, John. And then uh, a couple people from the local newspaper called me and said, how do you react to John, uh, John McEnroe calling you that? And I said, listen, it was John's way of, um, of upping me and trying to be funny. And uh, if that's how he feels about me, at least I know that John McEnroe knows who I am, and I just had to move on from it. It, it, it caught me off guard, and uh, what are you going to do? I work with John all the time, and John's been nothing but uh, respectful to me since. So I think it was just heat of the moment that uh, that was his way of getting back at me.
2: Now, I'm really excited to get your thoughts because, to me, before all this started, the really big abyss was going to see the big three with Andy, Andy Murray. So you're talking about Rafa, Roger joke which is a little bit younger when those guys retire with the Williams sisters with share now who's left the stage and of course the Brian brothers we're talking the most dominant group of players to have ever touched a tennis racket leaving the stage somebody's going to be winning these slams but not everyone has the dynamic personality in draw power you're from show business where does the game kind of go Forget what's going on right now, if we're back up the speed, who really takes over? I love Kenan. I think she's fantastic. The women's game's very dynamic with Coco and some young stars. The men's game's a little bit more in doubt.
1: Well, I'll tell you I'm going to get a lot of flack for this, and uh, I will say that if he can start improving his results, that one of the best guys for the men's game is Nick Curios.: Of and, course, uh, yeah,
2: absolutely
1: mm-hmm. and I would say that. The only, and I, I'm, a, I'm a big Nick fan. He's another example of a guy who I have spent a lot of time with behind the scenes and we laugh a ton. I don't know exactly who Nick becomes sometimes in a match. I don't know if Nick knows who Nick becomes in a couple of those matches. But he's incredible for the game because he's controversial. It might be time for that. Uh, I believe that some of these guys who aren't afraid to share their feelings and speak a little bit, he just, they just need to get their results to match what they're doing. And, and uh, you know, Nick, you have to remember, earlier in his career, Novak got a little bit outspoken, made a few enemies in there when he was uh, and nothing from his fault. I think he just was honest and was impersonating players before he might have had the right to impersonate them. But uh, he delivered the goods and now has justified the trouble that he might have caused earlier on. And I just think we need to get players who aren't afraid to speak. I think we need to get... Sitsipas to talk about how he's feeling when he's having a rough time, or, or Zverev to not be, uh, not be afraid to speak about the lulls in his career and to explain why he thinks they're happening. These guys just need to articulate a little bit. I, I have full confidence that these guys are gonna, that they're going to rise to the occasion when the time comes. It's kind of hard for them to really speak their mind right now when mom and dad are home. You know what I mean? Yep. And I think once mom and dad go on vacation, and I'm using that as a metaphor, Noah, uh, retire, dad go on vacation, I think they'll, they'll take a little more free reign uh, of the house. And I think you're going to start seeing a little, bit, uh, a little bit more animation from these guys who are ready to take the torch. When Novak started to take the torch earlier in his career, it worked against him. And I think these guys have seen that. And I think they're waiting to grab that torch until it's a little bit more appropriate for them. Although, going back in time, I don't think Novak did anything wrong at all. It just was the way it was. He, dis- he disrupted Camelot, for lack of a better uh, analogy there. You know, that's
0: a really interesting point. But I kind of feel like there's almost this old guard that's still permeating tennis that's not allowing these players to speak their mind. And it goes beyond the current players that are dominating right now. I mean, you see Federer is all class. Nadal um, claps back at Kyrgios when he says something. But you still have to feel that even within the media, there's a sense that these players shouldn't speak their mind. Just elaborate on that.
1: Well, I think that the media right now, we're in a very, very different time uh, in media right now. The way media wants to, at least I feel at my age, and I think, Luke, I'm close to you in age, that... There was a different respect back in the day from media. Now you're sitting in a room full of journalists, and nine out of eight out of ten of them, and they're all bright. They're all respectful journalists, but a lot of them have a can of gasoline, and they're just waiting to pour it on the fire. And uh, I think that that takes precedence sometimes, and it's a shame that it does because sometimes it really does come uh, to backfire. But I think that when people are in the media room. They need to feel safe to talk about what they want to talk about
2: before it goes exceptionally viral. Here's my theory on that, too. Again, Noah can't understand because he's from another generation. But if you look at (laughs) Nadal, these older players didn't grow up early in juniors and early in their pro career with social media. They'd play the match, they'd come in, they'd have their press conference, and that was just the traditional way. Now I'm telling you, if you look at that break and you start talking about Zverev and Osaka and all these players, they are so locked into their social media because now for the first time the athlete truly has a voice. They can send out what they want, and so they don't really necessarily need the traditional media. The other thing is, who is media? They, there are so many people using image and likeness to push their own website and their own this and that platform. And I think the player just, as really those younger players use social media, as soon as the match is over, they are seeing how many likes, who's watching. And then they shit. I mean, it's amazing. Before they go into their ice bath and their recovery from their match, they're seeing what's going on in their social media pages. Well, there's nobody
1: nobody policing it at all, uh, which is an issue for me. I also feel that some of these players are better at social media than they are at communicating publicly. And uh, I think it would be nice if the tours uh, played a little bit of a part in that. But then I'm starting to sound like I'm really old. So it's an interesting, uh, you bring up a really interesting point, Luke. It's uh, where's the line there? Should they be tweeting things on their way to their post-match interviews? Uh, should they be tweeting things before they're mad? Well, it doesn't matter because they're going to, right? So the question becomes is uh, where where is the safest way and the best way to communicate these brands? Because we are, as players and as media personalities and hosts, and we, we have a brand that we want to protect and we want to promote. And uh, there's a really fine line there. And, and it's new territory. We're all ex- exploring it as we speak. You sounded so old right there, Andrew. I have to say.
0: That's a good point. But as just somebody coming from this younger generation, I think it's a great thing. I mean, if you're a player and you can shape the narrative before you even step into a press room, I mean, if I was in the shoes of somebody, regardless of whether if I won or lost the match, I'd be all over that. And I'd rather be able to dictate my own narrative rather than have to draw on the questions that I'm taking from Andrew Krasny on the court. Yeah, but you, Noah, I, I, yeah, go ahead,
2: Andrew, no, I'm go sorry. No, like I would say, the, the only thing I would say with that is, I truly believe that the older generation doesn't care about the thumbs down. We don't read the comments, whereas I truly believe that the, the, the reason the younger generation hasn't taken that next step, it's not because they don't have the ability, but they are so personally attacked. Madison Keys, I believe, is a great example. She has been personally, I feel, damaged because she gets, you know, negative comments and she reads them. And I don't think the older generation does.
1: Right. Well, first first of all, I will, it'll be phonetics. She's been affected by it. She hasn't been damaged by it because Madison Keys is the strongest and most aware of the damage that that can do to her. So I will say that I believe that, it's called social media for a reason. I believe that there should be social media, and I believe that there should be professional media. And if that makes me sound old, Noah, then, then so be it. But I do believe that the thoughts that uh, if, if a player is not liking what they're being asked about their match, then I don't think the question's being asked correctly, number one. Number two, it's usually the players who've lost the match that aren't liking the questions. And if they want to dictate uh, their narrative, Uh, I believe that uh, they should be able to do it on both channels and it's just a little bit harder when none of us want to get to that point where we feel safer to hide behind our computer or our cell phones. We need to be responsible and feel just as safe in front of a room full of journalists or as we do in front of our computer. And I believe that we just have to walk that fine line of how we want to portray our thoughts to our fans and to our readership and viewership that we have to understand that there's many vehicles to do so and we have to do so responsibly. But another interesting point is that,
0: especially given the circumstance right now where there is no tennis and there likely won't be tennis (coughs) in the foreseeable future, it's just very interesting for me to see how, well, not only are these players still interacting with their fans as if they would say during a tournament or I mean, during the lead up to, to a big event, they're still day day in and day out, getting in contact with them through social media. And I think the power of it uh, in that sense, just something that has to be acknowledged.
1: Well, listen, I think that we should take advantage of the fact that uh, nothing's going to change the situation in the immediate future that we're in right now. And this is an opportunity for us to get to know tennis players on a whole different level, uh, to see them in their, uh, for lack of a better word, to see them in their natural habitat. I think it's awesome. I think that We all have to start focusing on the good that's happening through this crisis that we're going through right now. And constantly remember to check that list and notice that if there are two things that we're freaked out about, that there's gotta be eight, 10, 12 things that we're really excited about. We're getting to know our families better. We're getting to know our significant others better. We're getting to to know tennis players and what they're doing behind the scenes. And it's a lot of good, is going to come of this i also think we need to acknowledge the lives that have been lost and never forget them and uh and as much as we want to send memes around that make each other laugh and i'm a huge fan of laughter in times of trouble we need to always remember that something serious is going on and we need to uh to learn from this and i think it's i think a lot of good's going to come out of this situation
2: i mean it's really shocking think of the u.s open you know 25,000 meals a day they're taking COVID patients uh, at the National Tennis Center, Patrick McEnroe being infected, uh, he's in quarantine. It's just amazing how it's really kidding home to the tennis world. What do you think, Andrew, is going to be the new normal in professional tennis?
1: Well, first of all, I'll tell you that uh, my heart fell through the bottom of my stomach when I saw, and I use this word loosely, my office, right? My office for 10 days a year at the US Open is the new Louis Armstrong Stadium. A big shout out to the USTA and Michael Feuer for trusting me with the microphone and making that my office. That's where I met Noah. Uh, To be honest with you, it's a pretty cool place. Uh, To see that court being used to hold these meals uh, broke my heart. But at the same time, it filled my heart and understanding uh, what we can do as a community to help each other. I don't know what's going to happen with tennis yet. I'm going to stay positive and hope that we can get back out on the court in in August in San Jose and Cincinnati and uh, if we don't, uh, I take great comfort in knowing that, that I'm only one small spoke in a massive wheel of very intelligent, very talented, and very bright people, uh, including you, Luke. No, I'm not sure yet, who, uh, who I believe really want to see this sport come back because uh, tennis literally has saved my life. Uh, and uh, I really do hope to, uh, to get back into action. I, I miss it a great deal. I miss so much more than watching the ball go back and forth. I miss the relationships I've made in this sport and the camaraderie and growing old with so many of my colleagues has been Very a privilege. Old. And uh, I'm, hoping to, uh, I'm hoping to get back on the court really, really soon. On a more
0: positive note, both you, Andrew, and Luke have something in common. Nobody I work with, and I work with a lot of people now across a few different industries, nobody I work with other than the two of you gives me as much as much flack as either one of the two of you. And I just I don't even know where that comes from. I don't know if it's my beard or the way I talk, but...
1: <laughs> I would, like I said earlier, I would say that it's probably your inability to use words that have more than two syllables, Noah. And I would say that as soon as you get uh, hooked on phonics or hooked on something that can make you sound brighter, I think Luke and I would welcome the opportunity to stop ribbing you all the time. I'm just kidding, Noah.
0: You're a great kid. We love you. I know you love me. You know I went to preschool at uh, Princeton University. I'm you not did. kidding. Not even kidding. So you went to preschool at Princeton. So and then what it was is- all, all downhill from there. I mean, through the West Windsor <laughs> public school system, and then to Syracuse <laughs> University, this uh, fancy journalism school that uh, produced a, a couple of uh, people who were pretty good at their jobs. And uh, yeah, then with Luke Jensen at the Westside Tennis Club, there we go. <laughs>
1: Noah, I will tell you, and you'll learn this very soon in the business as you're, you'll learn, and Luke will tell you that you gotta get thick skin. I will tell you that the people that I make fun of are the people that I respect most. So the more, it's when I stop making fun of you and giving you a hard time, that's when I would be worried.
2: Well, I'll tell you, Andrea, it's been so much fun talking to you today, but really our friend here, Noah, has done an amazing job for the West Side Tennis Club. We met just almost a year ago uh, at a, during a concert day at the Westside Tennis Club. He just graduated from Syracuse. I coached at Syracuse. My last recruit was one of his good friends. Um, and so we connected. And then I saw an amazing talent. And it's been so much fun over the last 12 months to watch him grow. I mean, to show a club of 128 years like the Westside Tennis Club how we can really expand our footprint and go beyond just kind of what we do with newsletters and websites and what he's created in the digital space. And then to see him, what he's doing with you, it, it's just incredible how we continue to hand on, hand over just kind of the game. Well, first of all,
1: though I, I was looking forward to giving you a big opportunity in Miami, which I'm sure is going to happen one day, is making you uh, our MC uh, on our second biggest court. Uh, Luke, I'm a huge fan. I play doubles every day of the year that I can, and doubles is my game. So uh, you guys are awesome. You're awesome for the sport, and I'm looking forward to having more conversations when we're talking about uh, matches that we just saw earlier in the day. I hope that's our next
0: conversation. That's all the time that we have today on the Forest Hills Tennis Podcast. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Luke, I don't know what else you're doing right now, but thank you as well. For more great content, check us out on social media, at Westside Tennis Club, and we'll see you on our next episode.